Hello, this is Chris Date, and you are listening to the Theapologetics Podcast, Episode 3, You Spin Me Round. of this episode is presuppositional apologetics, and I've got a real treat in store for you today as I'll be interviewing a guest concerning today's topic. Despite this being only the third episode of my podcast and having only a handful of listeners, this guest who recently appeared on Premier Christian Radio's Unbelievable program with Justin Brierley has graciously offered to talk with me about this approach to defending the faith, and I think you're going to find what he has to say very powerful. Before I jump into the topic and interview, I've got some housekeeping to do regarding the previous episode. First, in that episode, I spoke of a friend who challenged me regarding the issue of baptism, and I said that his congregation was part of the Churches of Christ, and it appears that I may have made a mistake in associating him with those congregations who fall under that umbrella. Uh, I'm not 100% certain that that association is incorrect, and I still think that the argument that I gave faithfully represents his view, but I really do care about my friend and want to apologize for any false impression that I've given my listeners about his congregation. So please do forgive me, and I'll try to be more careful in the future. What saddens me more, however, is that my friend confessed to me that um, both in the previous episode of this podcast as well as in comments that I've left at his blog, uh, he's felt like I've been condescending or mocking. I don't know how to fix that. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what specifically it is that I do or how it is that I say what I say that gives that impression, but I feel horrible that that's the impression I've given him. And so, my friend, if you're listening, know that I deeply care about your feelings. I don't look down upon your view. I think it's wrong, but I don't look down on it. And I just want you to know that I am sincerely uh, sorry for giving you that impression, and I hope that you'll forgive me, and I'll try to be more careful in the future. Second, you might have noticed some strange behavior in the feed over the past several days. I mentioned in the previous episode that my podcast was available in the iTunes store, and that was true um, at the time that I recorded that uh, those words, but shortly thereafter, the podcast was removed from the store, and the email that I received said only that it was for technical reasons. I still, to this day, don't know for sure what those reasons were, so I'm not going to go into detail, but suffice it to say that in an attempt to try and resolve the issues, I had to re-upload the episodes, which may have caused your podcatcher to show four episodes instead of two, when in fact the previous versions of those two episodes are no longer available and have been replaced by the new ones. Don't worry, the audio is identical, it's just that the new versions have my podcast's logo embedded into the MP3 files. Uh, which means that it should now appear correctly in iTunes and on your iPod, each of which, for some idiotic reason, refused to download and show the logo if not embedded directly into the files. The good news is my podcast is once again available in the iTunes store, so please do leave me comments if you're so inclined. Moving on from talking about previous episodes, I'm excited to announce that starting with this episode, my podcast has its own custom theme music. No, it's not You Spin Me Round by Dead or Alive, but the music that played for about 30 seconds before that is mine all mine. Beyond adding a bit of my own personality to the show and making it more identifiable by the music that will open and close each episode, this also means that I can record a promo for my podcast, which I'm hoping my podcaster friends will be willing to play in their shows. Hint, hint. I also want to thank my friend Glenn Peoples of Theme Music New Zealand for creating theme music for my show. You can access his site at thememusic.co.nz. I definitely recommend his services for your theme music needs. Also, some of you may know Glenn for his work at the Beretta Blog and Podcast, a promo for which I'd like to play right now. Hi, this is Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. the Beretta Cast. Tune in to hear discussions of philosophy, theology, and even the odd bit of politics from a Christian point of view that doesn't necessarily fit in with the crowd. Search for Say Hello to My Little Friend at the iTunes Store, or check us out online, beretta-online.com. Please do check out the Beretta blog and podcast at beretta-online.com. 
As he mentioned in his promo, he's a bit outside the mainstream in certain theological areas, but his arguments are well-founded in Scripture and thoroughly thought out and well-articulated. I believe we have far more in common than we differ. Plus, his accent makes his show far more interesting than mine is, with my lame, uninteresting American non-accent. I think you'll enjoy it very much. So with that, let's move into the topic of this episode. In a recent episode of Premier Christian Radio UK's Unbelievable Show with Justin Brierley, the topic was presuppositional apologetics, an approach to defending the faith with which many Christians, including myself, are woefully unfamiliar. I really very highly recommend this show as it really gets us Christians to think something that, you know, we kind of need to do more of. Each episode presents a debate, usually between a Christian and a non-Christian, and in this episode, a Christian went head-to-head against an atheist, and all I can say is that I was blown away. We're going to get into what presuppositional apologetics is in a few minutes, but before we do, I put together some clips from the show to illustrate how powerful, I think, this approach is. You see, many of us Christians are familiar with arguing with atheists over philosophical and evidential arguments against Christianity. We'll argue for hours about the reliability of scripture, you know, the historicity of Jesus, uh, the possibility of miracles, the problem of evil, the certainty of the resurrection, and so on and so forth. And usually in the end, nobody is convinced to change their view. And often, the Christian is left fatigued and potentially shaken in his faith. But as I listened to this debate, I was laughing out loud and cheering the Christian guest on as he brought to light how circular atheistic reasoning is. For those unfamiliar with logic, circular reasoning or circular logic is basically assuming the very thing that you're trying to prove in the proof that you give for it. It would be like saying, I know the sky is blue because it's, because it's blue. When you see circular reasoning, you know that there lacks any real foundation for one's claims. As R.C. Sproul has said of humanism, it's like standing with two feet firmly planted in midair. Listen along as the atheist guest demonstrates the circular nature of his atheism, and just in case it's not clear, the atheist guest is the one who is in studio, so his sound quality is better, whereas the Christian guest was calling in, so you can kind of tell he's on the phone. Guess what would it take to convince an atheist that the resurrection had happened? And I said to him, well, if we had affidavits from the Roman guards standing at the foot of the cross that they'd seen the resurrection take place, they'd seen the body taken down, they'd seen the body taken to the grave, they'd stayed by the body, and they'd actually seen the stone being rolled away and Jesus come out, and they'd stayed with Jesus all through the 40 days and watched him ascend to heaven, would an atheist accept it? And I said, no. And that, that, that is really the key. Evidence is not the issue. I, I understand that, but you don't know for certain that that's possible. You just say you don't believe it's possible, but technically, if we were to go down to the technical route, it would be possible. There I would have to ask, where is your evidence? Is it impossible that the Christian God exists? No, because that's an absolute. If such a God exists, could he reveal some things to his creatures such that they can know them for certain, if such a God exists? Again, you're using the word for certain, and to me that's an absolute, and I would say no. So it would be impossible for God to do that? No. Do you know anything, and if so, what do you know, and how are you able to know it? Okay, I know I exist. How do you know that? Because I am existing. Don't you find that to be a circular argument, I exist because I exist? I know I exist because I know I exist. That's right. How do I know I exist? I know I exist because I am here existing. When, when God says in, in the Psalms, he doesn't say the brilliant philosopher says in his heart there is no God. He doesn't say the brilliant mathematician says in his heart there is no God. He says the fool says in his heart there is no God. When somebody can say, I exist because I exist, is not circular. You know, he doesn't have to accept that that's foolish. But I think from an objective view, we can see the foolishness of it. On what reason do you trust the validity of your reasoning? I trust my reasoning based on feedback that I receive from other people that I interact with. And you use your reasoning to understand that interaction? Of course you do. It's my point that you trust your reasoning based on the validity of your reasoning, that you talk about other societies. and all, But the thing is, you are trusting your reasoning in order to make that explanation. What I cannot accept is an absolute law of non-contradiction. I don't accept they are the same. 
So you do accept that it's the same? No, I don't accept that they are the same. So you do accept that it's the same? No. See, if it's not absolute, then I can contradict you and you have no objection. And it's our ability to actually set logic aside as an analytical tool um, in order to um, think outside the envelope. You have to be able to almost make a logical leap. You have to put logic to one side. And what basis do you expect historical events to be valid now? My experience of previous historical events being repeated. That's right. You base it on past experience. But this is what I'm pointing out. They accept that the future will be like the past because it's been like that. That's a viciously circular argument. No, it's not. That's experience. That's right. How do you know that your experiences are valid now? How do you know that the future is like the past? And you're talking to me about the past. That's the very thing that I'm asking you about. No, I think you're going around in circles. <laughs> well, I think that it, it's very obvious for the listeners to see who is actually going around in circles. No, not at all. I'm going to try not to go around in circles as I speak with my guest, Cy Tenbruggen-Kate, creator of ProofThatGodExists.org. Cy, thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Chris. Uh, thanks for having me on. Sure. Uh, we just listened to some clips from your recent debate, um, and Paul said some pretty surprising things, at least to somebody unfamiliar with this approach like me. He said evidence is not the issue, and then he pressed you for evidence. He said that uh, he knows he exists because he exists, and um, perhaps most surprisingly of all, he said that we need to set logic aside and take logical leaps. I, I found this ironic since... Um, so often it's we Christians who are characterized as being illogical. And I'm curious, is, is this circular nature of his faith, of, and I do call it a faith, is this, is this something you find characteristic of most atheists that you talk with? This has to be the case with all atheists. If they reject God as a necessary presupposition, then anything they say ends up being reduced to a viciously circular argument. Sure. And what really strikes me about this approach is that... Um, it really is as much for the believer, if not more so, than it is for the unbeliever, because it shows us how certain we can we can truly be of the reality of God, and at the same time, shows us how foolish denying Him truly is. Do you, do you get that same impression that it's as much for us as for them? Oh, absolutely. Actually, I'm preparing for this uh, interview on the Unbelievable Radio program. I listened to how Christians argued for the existence of God, and I was appalled. And mm. I think that uh, you know our view of God that we have in church that He certainly exists. We have to bring that into the world, but uh, sadly the world is duping us into believing in, in a probable God, and that theology is actually um, filtering its way back into the church. So um, that's why I think it's really important to bring this proper biblical apologetic to Christians, and then they can go out and uh, bring that to other unbelievers. Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll get into the biblical nature of this approach in a minute, but first, because a lot of my listeners probably aren't familiar with apologetics at all, um, can you explain to us what evidential apologetics is and maybe give an example or two, the kinds that we see in discussions between Christians and atheists every day? Well, first of all, I think it's uh, important to clear up what apologetics is, because uh, up until a few years ago, I didn't really know what the word meant. Apologetics, it sounds like uh, Christians uh, are going around apologizing or being sorry <laughs> for being Christians. But uh, that's not the case at all. Apologetics actually comes from the Greek apologia, which means to give a defense. If you're accused of a crime, then in the courts in ancient times, you gave up and you gave your apologia. So it's a logical defense of the Christian faith. Yeah, not not, but, not a asking for forgiveness or something. No, that's right. Although I think in many instances, uh, Christians should be asking for forgiveness for the uh, woeful representation that they've given of God when they've defended their faith. Um, now, you're talking about evidential apologetics. That is the vast majority of the apologetic that's going on. If you go on the Internet, if you uh, search for uh, um, apologetic-type websites, you will most likely find evidential websites. And they have uh, arguments, for instance, like the teleological argument and the cosmological argument. The teleological argument, for instance, says uh, there's evidence for the complexity of the universe. Things which are complex exhibit design, and that... Things that exhibit design must have a designer. That designer is God. And mm. uh, the cosmological argument basically says the evidence shows that everything we see begin to exist must have a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore it must have a cause. That cause must be uncaused, and since God is uncaused, God is the cause. Mm. <laughs> so um, those are t traditional arguments, and I used to love these arguments as a Christian because the conclusions were true, but uh, after digging into them a little bit deeper, I saw how woefully inadequate these arguments were. 
Sure, and I think that we could also talk about, you know, of course, the you know debates over the reliability of Scripture and uh, the resurrection of Christ and stuff like that. But what are what are some of the practical problems inherent in uh, an approach to defending the faith where we rely upon evidence rather than what we're going to be talking about momentarily? Well, I can go into specifics about the two arguments that I mentioned, like the teleological sure. and the cosmological argument. And I'll just ask you a question. Okay. In the teleological argument, the design of the universe points to a God. But my question to you is, why does that designer have to be the Christian God? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that question. See, and that's a huge problem with that argument. It, it talks about some generic supernatural force, and you know anybody can claim that. Right. And uh, another problem with the argument is that if things which are complex must have a designer, then God must be incredibly complex in order to design the universe. So who designed God? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point as well. And uh, here's some problems with the cosmological argument. First of all, they say everything which begins to exist has a cause. But how do you know everything began to exist? See, we only have a very limited scope of observation, so we can't say that everything began to exist. Mm. And another problem is that everything that we see begins to exist has a natural cause. Why does the universe have to have a supernatural cause? Sure. I mean, I'm sure that we could go down that road, but I think ultimately, you know, you would reach a stalemate, and I don't know that anybody would be convinced. You know, and another... Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say another problem is, same with the teleological argument, why does the cause of the universe have to be the Christian God? Right. Right. Mm Yeah. You know, another practical problem that I think might sort of resonate with... Well, I know it does with me and, and maybe some of my listeners is that, uh, these kinds of approaches seem to require a lot of, um, study on the part of the person doing the defending. You know, somebody who goes up against somebody like Paul trying to defend the reliability of scripture has to have a lot of, um, study and knowledge under their belt, textual criticism arguments and, and things like that. Um, when we talk about science, you've got to practically have a PhD if you're going to defend the faith from, um, from somebody who's attacking it on, on scientific merits. So, um, you know, it, it seems like there's just tons of practical problems and i'm sure we could come up with a whole lot more um oh absolutely like for instance if uh, the university professor of microbiology stopped you on the street and says that microbiology shows that uh, creation is false now if you want to argue on the same level as this person and, and defeat his argument you have to be as smart or smarter than them but that's not going to be the case and you're not only talking about microbiology you're talking about astrophysics you're talking about psychology you're talking about any of the sciences you have to know all of them as good or better than them in order to discuss it with them and we know that that's impossible. But the thing is, if we look at 1 Peter 3.15, Peter's telling us that we have to be prepared to give a defense for anybody that asks us. Yeah. So that means we have to be as smart as all these people if we do it the wrong way. But at the beginning of that verse, it says, set apart Christ as Lord. And if you do that, then the argument becomes easy. Sure. And, you know... Uh there's a, a radio station I like to, or a radio show I like to listen to by a guy named Greg Kokel, and one of his, um, uh, I don't know if it's a, just somebody that he's associated or whatever, but he came up with a phrase, you know, a, a, when we think of apologetics, oftentimes we think of the really big names out there, um, you know, R.C. Sproul and, and a whole host of other people could come to mind, um, and these are kind of what he calls million-dollar apologists. But what I like about, um, or what, what I what I read from this passage that you just quoted, is that re- what we really need is not um, more million dollar apologists but uh, we need a million one dollar apologists and i think that the problem with this evidential approach is that it really requires you can't be a one dollar apologist and do it well that's a practical problem but i think we're going to talk about it a little bit later that uh, it's actually a biblical problem too so yeah let's let's talk about that actually right now you know i think that god's design for our lives um, is not only right, you know, godly, but but it's practical. And conversely, the things that are often impractical are impractical because they're not godly. So tell me, is there something that's not just impractical about this kind of evidential approach, but actually wrong or ungodly? Well, definitely. And um, the thing is, first, I want to be clear about it. I have no problem with evidences. I love to know the history of Scripture. You know, I love to know the Christian understanding of dinosaurs. I don't even have a problem with using evidences with unbelievers, but they must be used in their proper context, which is sadly not the case with uh, most apologetics. Now, let me ask you a question. A question. I'm going to try and drive this home with you and perhaps uh, your listeners out there. Okay. Now, in the secular world, when you hear the word evidence or people presenting evidence, where is that most often done? I would say in a courtroom. Okay, right. It's in the courtroom. Now, who... In the courtroom, is the evidence presented to? Either the jury or the judge or both. That's right. Okay, now, when we present evidence to the unbeliever, who is the judge and the jury? 
the unbeliever, the, the, the person. That's right. Man. Now, who's on trial? Well, God. That's right. Yeah. Now, now, I mean, what a horrible thing to do to take God out of the judgment seat and to actually put him on trial. And uh, Christians happily try and acquit God, the Lord of glory, and we're trying to acquit God. Now, you might think Christians would never consciously suggest that we put God or Jesus on trial. But look at what we put on our church signs and on our bumper stickers and on our T-shirts. Try Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, I mean, it's woeful. I mean, I mean, people, you know, they praise that. But who in Scripture tried Jesus? Pontius Pilate. That's right. And where is Pontius Pilate now if he didn't repent? He's in hell. Sure. So, you know, I would not go around telling people to try Jesus and try and acquit God with evidences. I mean, hopefully when you look at it in that light, you can see that having God on trial and having us try to acquit him is a, is a woefully inadequate and unbiblical way to do apologetics. It, it, I, I would say I, I tend to agree. And what's unfortunate is that um, I don't think we really ever, well, many of us anyway, think of it that way. You know, we, we like you said, we like evidential apologetics and we do it, but we don't. Um, this doesn't strike us what it is that we're really doing, putting God on trial. Well, so That's right, because what we do in a situation like that is that we leave man as the authority. Right. See, when we argue that way, we assume that man can neutrally examine evidence and come to rational decisions about God when, in fact, all evidences are interpreted subject to what we already believe. And the example that I provided on the radio show was uh, the example of the resurrection. Now, let's say that you used evidences to prove the validity of the resurrection to the unbeliever. Now, the unbeliever is coming into this argument, into this uh, discussion, with the presupposition that his senses and reasoning are God, that, that that's the highest authority. So let's say you prove that the resurrection happened using their senses and reasoning. Mm. They could just easily say, wow, what do you know? Strange things happen in this world. Carl Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> but the thing is, their senses and reasoning does not force them to admit that because the resurrection is true, that Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah. Well, and like you said in the debate as well, um, you know, we could take another person who is convinced um, by their reasoning, um, but then the very next day finds more convincing evidence from another atheist, and so then they're just right back on uh, the, the page that they were before. And that's right. What, what I want you to picture is the unbeliever holding up the scales of justice, and on one scale is evidence for God, and on one scale is the evidence you know, against God. And they're just deciding, based on the evidences, whether they're going to acquit God or not. When we have to point out to them, no, it's God who's in the judgment seat, and it's us who's on trial. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Well, so, you know, with these biblical and practical issues with an evidential apologetic in mind, what does the Bible say about the condition of the unbeliever? Does it say that the problem is just that they haven't yet been presented with, you know, convincing enough evidence? Well, let's, uh, let's look at uh, Romans 1, 18 to 21. That's uh, the verses most often cited when... Uh, giving a justification for presuppositional apologetics. You know, I would argue that throughout Scripture, it, it uh, supports this apologetic. But these are the verses most often read, so let, let me just read them for sure. you. Romans 1, 18-21. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, I read that verse. I can tell you how many times I read that verse. And then I went out and I believed the unbeliever that they really didn't believe in God. And I tried to give them evidence. Mm -hmm. And not only does the Bible say that that's the wrong thing to do, but I mean, this is something that we know anyways. Because if our friend or relative or somebody in the deepest, darkest jungle of the uh, South America, received no evidence from us that God existed, and they were to die, would they have an excuse when they stand before God? If they didn't truly believe, then yeah, they would. You think that they would have an excuse? Well, if, if they didn't really have, um, if the issue was evidence, and if they didn't have convincing enough evidence, then yeah. No, I'm saying that if people on earth, if you or I did not present these people with any evidence, would they have an excuse when they stand Oh, before? no, of course not. The, the, no, no, they wouldn't. I'm saying if okay. evidence were really the issue, I think that they would. That's right. If evidence presented by us was the issue, right. then they would have. However, since that's not the issue, if they would have an excuse, then going on and presenting them evidence would be the actually, actually the worst thing that you could do for them. For sure. Because here they would be without an excuse, and you present evidence to them, and now there's a chance that they can go to hell. 
Yeah. You know, like their current condition, well, maybe they have a chance to go to heaven because they don't have enough evidence. And now all of a sudden you can present evidence to them and they have a chance to go to hell. Sure, they might live a miserable life on earth without Christ, but if they have a chance to go to heaven without rejecting Christ and giving, giving them evidence would be the worst thing you could do. But, I mean, there's, it's throughout Scripture. Look at Psalm 14.1. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I mean, Scripture is not kind to unbelief. It doesn't classify them as seekers. It classifies them as fools. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. So it's not just that this approach is impractical. It's not just that it's unbiblical because of the fact that we're putting God on trial, but it's actually assuming something that is uh, that the Bible says is false, which is that the you know we're assuming that the unbeliever just simply has yet to be convinced that he hasn't been presented with enough evidence. Whereas we know from Scripture that they have all the evidence that they need, that they already know in fact that God exists, and it's that it's for that reason that they don't have an excuse. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Well, so with that, with all that in view, summarize for us uh, as a sort of an introduction what a presuppositional approach to apologetics is and how it addresses what the Bible says is true about the unbelieving heart. Well, I'll give you uh, the the main contrast. The evidential approach starts with the position that man is the authority, and it ends with the position that man is the authority, and that there might be some generic God. But the presuppositional approach starts with the position that the God of Christianity is the authority over all aspects of life, and it finishes there. And rather than try and convince people that God exists, we show them by taking their masks off, by exposing what they really believe, that they do know that God exists, just as it says in Romans 1. Now, in Proverbs 26, verse 4, it says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. So what that is basically saying, like these are verses that until I understood this apologetic, you know, I did not know how to interpret. Hmm. But do not answer a fool according to his folly. That's do not answer to the fool, assuming that his authority, that that man is the authority, is the right way. Because if you do that, then you end up with the with the same position that man is authoritative. And the example that I that I've used that I like to use is going on the atheist airplane. If you go on the atheist airplane where man is the authority, you can talk about whatever you want, but you're going to the atheist destination. Hmm. So we do not assume that the unbeliever is the authority because then you give up God as the authority. And that is unbiblical. That's sinful. Sure. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so but what, I, what I'm not sure I quite understand yet, um, how is it that we, um, that we avoid getting on their plane and instead stick to our plane, so to speak? Well, when they tell you that they don't believe in God, don't believe them. Rather than listen to what they tell them about the condition of their hearts, we have to listen to what God says about the condition of their heart. And God says in his word that they are without excuse because they already know him. That's what we have to believe. So when Aunt Agnes, who's doing her knitting, who says, oh, I'm really seeking and, you know, <laughs> and I don't know this God, you, you don't believe them. Of course, you have to do it with gentleness and respect. Mm. But you have to show that, you know, considering their condition, considering their worldview, that they really do know that God exists. And you do that with things such as logic, science, morality, mathematics, anything really, any assumptions that the unbeliever makes, you can go back and show that they're actually standing on the truth of the Christian worldview, and they're suppressing it, just as it says in Romans 1. Okay, so then what you're saying is that some of these foundational things, like what you just mentioned, logic and so forth, are things that we presuppose the validity of and live by, and that they're only possible... Um, if one presumes the existence of God. And so what this demonstrates is that we all do, in fact, know on a fundamental level that he exists, but that we suppress it. Is that about right? Yeah, that's, that's basically the presuppositional approach, that all of these things that people take for granted, they cannot justify them without God, without the God of Scripture. So rather than try and prove that God exists, you know, using these fundamental elements, we show them that they already believe that God exists and are suppressing the truth. I see. Well, so many of us, and this includes myself with a um, vague familiarity with this approach, kind of often felt like it's over our heads, um, that you have to be really brilliant and, and, you know, it just, it just seems to fly right over our heads. But as we've seen, it, you know, it's kind of the evidential apologetics that requires this kind of smarts. You've got to be learned and you've got to be studious and, you know, oftentimes you have to have a certain high level of intelligence. Do you think that this approach that we've just touched on and are going to get into in a moment in more detail is something that can really be understood and applied by people like me who are just really average Joes in the pews? Well, I would consider myself an average Joe as well. I don't have any uh, degrees in any of this. But, you know, the the verse, 1 Peter 3.15, that tells us to be prepared to answer everybody. I mean, what did Peter do for a profession? Uh, he was a fisherman. 
That's right. <laughs> and he's telling us to answer everybody. That's including, you know, the microbiologists, the scientists. So when he's telling us to do this, he's not coming from a position of, of brilliant knowledge. He's coming from a position of the authority, the, the lordship of Jesus Christ. And, you know, I could give you an example how this apologetic is actually very easy to understand by looking at what the person is standing on. Because what happens when you start to argue presuppositionally, you destroy people's worldviews. You take away the justification for logic, for science, for math, for morality. So what they end up saying is, well, I guess I really can't know anything. And, you know, I was explaining this apologetic to a friend of mine, and he went home, and he was really excited about this uh, new apologetic, and he mentioned it to his seven-year-old daughter. He said, you know, dear, that there's some people out there who say that you can't know anything? And you know what she responded? Seven years old, she said, how do they know that? <laughs> That's See, awesome. I think we, we start out as presuppositionalists, but then the world beats, uh, beats it out of us. See, this apologetic is simple. All you have to do is look at what they're standing on. And if a seven-year-old girl can do it, I'm sure that we all can do it. You know, we're going to do it at different degrees, at different levels. But all you have to do is look at what the person's assuming when they argue against Christianity. And I, I'm, what I'm telling you is that everything that they assume assumes that Christianity is true. Yeah, and, and that's really encouraging because, you know, I've got a five-year-old and a nine-year-old boy, and um, this is something that I'd love to be able to teach them at an early age so that uh, they're prepared when they face the same kind of questions that you and I are used to. So, yeah. Well, absolutely. I would, I would have loved to have known this apologetic when I was that young, and that's one of the things I'm trying to do is to dumb it down to the uh, level that people like uh, me can understand it. <laughs> I'm glad he didn't say you, although that would have been accurate. Um, well, no, this is good, though. So so we've got a you know a sort of overview, and you mentioned logic and stuff like that. Let, let's dive in and start looking at logic. How does the use of logic that we all take for granted presuppose the existence of God? All right, so with logic and with all of these uh, different aspects, we look at what the unbeliever is standing on when they make a logical objection to Christianity. Now, one of the most lo uh, one of the most common logical objections I'm sure you've heard as well is look at all the logical contradictions in the Bible. Oh yeah, I get it all the time. Now, what the evidentialist you know does is they run off and they study the Hebrew and the Greek and they try and resolve this apparent contradiction. Because as Christians, we believe that the Bible is in the infallible Word of God, so we believe there are no contradictions. So we we, we try to resolve it for the unbeliever. But the problem is, once you resolve one apparent contradiction, they say, well, what about this one? What about this one? What about this one? And that's a lot of work. Now, I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with studying Greek and Hebrew. I actually took a Hebrew class. I was going to take the whole course, but I quit after one day because it was really tough. <laughs> and, I, and I just didn't have the time to devote to that. Mm. So rather than you know studying the Greek and the Hebrew, what we do is we look at the unbelievers standing on. When they say, look at all the logical contradictions in the Bible, they're trying to say that that's why Christianity is true. Uh, that, that's why Christianity is false, sorry. But when they say that, they're actually standing on the fact that logical contradictions are not allowed in reasoning. Mm. And you ask the unbeliever, why is that not allowed? See, because in my worldview, you can't contradict yourself. You're not allowed to contradict yourself because it amounts to lying. Oh, and sure. God, commands us, God commands us not to lie. You ask the unbeliever, why are log logical contradictions in Scripture not even allowed? And they'll end up saying something like, well, it violates the laws of logic. And I say, oh, so you believe in logic. And they say, yes. They say, well, this law of contradiction, it's not made of matter, it's universal, and it does not change. Interestingly enough, the God of Scripture is universal, he's not made of matter, and he does, he not, does change. not change. Now, the laws of logic make sense in the Christian worldview, but the unbeliever believes in a world that is only made of matter and is constantly changing. Now, how do you get a law which forbids contradictions in a worldview like that? So in order to even level the objection against Christianity, they have to assume that Christianity is true. When people bring up a logical contradiction in Scripture, or an alleged logical contradiction, you know, I'll be happy to uh, answer it for them if I know the resolution. But what I say to them is, look, I'll address this apparent contradiction, but I want you to tell me why contradictions are not allowed. And whereas I can address the contradiction, they will not be able to give me an answer as to why contradictions are not allowed. And that exposes the fact that they're actually borrowing from our worldview. Yeah. Or the other thing they might do is try to deny that such absolute laws exist. Um, you know, in the debate that you had on Unbelievable, you pressed him on it, and he said that he denied that a law of non-contradiction was the same as an absolute law of contradiction. And it was funny because he said, uh, um, 
you said, so you do agree that they're the same. And he said, no, I don't agree that they're the same. And you said, you do. And, you know, your point, um, which may have been missed on some listeners, was that if these aren't absolute laws, you can contradict them and they, they have no excuse or, you know, they have no argument against that. And so I guess the question I have for you is for somebody like this who actually tries to deny that the laws of logic are absolute, what would the implications be um, in a worldview in which logic is not absolute? Well, first of all, like as you can see on that uh, radio interview, you could just have some uh, fun with the person. I mean, it's sad that their worldview is in the state that it's in. But once they deny the law of non-contradiction, all you have to do is contradict them. And like you said, a lot of people didn't get what I was doing there, but he denied the absoluteness of the law of non-contradiction, so I contradicted him. And he uh, objected to my contradiction. You know, if what he said was true, he should have said, yeah, that's fine. Right. But <laughs> but it's very. the thing is, people... They say that logic is not absolute, but they do not live that way. Because yeah. with Paul, I've, I've engaged with a discussion with him on, on the forum, and he stuck to his position that uh, the laws of logic, the law of contradiction was not absolute. And I asked him, if it's not absolute, do the laws of logic necessarily apply to our discussion? And he said, no. I said, okay, that's fantastic. Now I'm going to give you a new proof that, that logic is absolute. And I said to him, the penguin's bathtub typewriter, therefore the much. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, and the thing is, he would have no objection to something like that because he has no reason to absolutely apply the laws of logic. He can't account for them, for one thing, and he has no reason to apply them to me. But um, I don't know if you heard Ravi Zacharias. Sure, I love he's, Ravi. Yeah, he's actually um, he's from India originally, but he spent a lot of time in Canada, married a Canadian woman, and then he moved down to Atlanta. But uh, I really enjoy Ravi as well. But he was um, on one of his speaking tours, and he went by uh, the Wexner Center of uh, Performing Arts in Ohio. And I actually have the quote of this on my website. But the, uh, he was in a cab at the time, and the cab driver explained that the, this Wexner Center was built by an architect who was trying to show the deconstructionist uh, state of society, and he was denying logic and all these things. He had, um, he had um, turrets that went nowhere. He had staircases that ended up you know, just against walls, and he had pillars that were at an angle. And uh, Ravi asked the cab driver, he said, uh, did this architect do the same thing with the foundation? Mm. Yeah. See, and, and that's the thing. Like Paul and uh, you know, unbelievers, they can reject absolute laws, but they cannot build a worldview on that. You know, just like a building like this, they, they can talk about crazy things above the surface, but they have to have a solid foundation, and they deny it. And like I say, what we do is we expose that. Yeah, that's good. So you know, what we just talked about is that, our lives illustrate that we really do know absolute laws of logic exist, even if we try to deny them. So therefore, we know that God exists. But, you know, it doesn't end there. We've talked, we've talked also, or just briefly touched upon math. And so the next question I have for you is, how does doing math presuppose the existence of God? Okay, one thing I want to correct you on first, and, and I used to make this error uh, quite often, and I actually do make it on occasion. It's just that it's not that we uh, conclude that God exists because there are laws of logic. It's that we start with the oh, existence yeah. of God, and it's only with that presupposition that we can make sense of the laws of logic. And that's the same with math. Mathematical laws are absolute. They're not made of matter, and they don't change. And none of those elements can be made sense of without God, but they can and are made sense of with God. You're right. Excuse that mistake. I'll, I'll be careful about that in the future. <laughs> well, it's it's not uh, that you know um, you need an excuse for it. It's just that like uh, that we have to keep that in mind because that's the heart of the apologetic. Because if if God is the conclusion, then it can be any God, and then yeah. we run into the same problem as the evidentialist. Sure. Well, so, okay. So so again, how, how does math presuppose the existence of God? Well, it's, it's the same. It's the same thing that uh, the laws of mathematics and the constituents of mathematics, like numbers and stuff like that, they're universal. They're not made of matter, and they don't change. And as I said, none of those elements can be made sense of without God, and they are made sense of with God. So, so what you're saying is that, uh, take for example the fact that two plus two equals four. Um, if if we're going to assume that five seconds from now two plus two still equals four, um, the only way to account for that is uh, by presupposing the existence of God. Is that what you're saying? It's not only like that, but that you're getting more into the scientific uh, problem, like the uh, it's called the problem of induction, the uniformity of nature. But what I'm saying, and you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But what I'm saying is that you cannot even not only the mathematical equation two plus two equals four, you can't even account for the number two. Because because two, it's an immaterial concept. Like I, I heard uh, 
an explanation where the uh, professor, he went up to the board, uh, the board in front of the university class, and he wrote the number two on uh, the board, and he asked the class, he said, what's that? And, of course, they all yelled out, that's the number two. So he took an eraser, and he erased the number two, and he says, well, the number two is gone. I hope you don't uh-huh. have that in any of your phone numbers or, you know, on your checklist. <laughs> you can no longer use the number two. And they said, no, 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 it's a written representation of the number two. The number two is an immaterial concept. And the unbeliever cannot account for universal immaterial concepts. That's a good point. And, you know, when we, when we talk about math, um, it, it's funny because we, we think of uh, complex mathematical equations and, you know, we can begin to see the power in this argument um, when we look at it that way. But I think that on just a day-to-day level, we don't realize just how, uh, how much we assume um, – the, the fact that these laws of mathematics are immaterial and universal. You know, our cars and our televisions and our stereos and our computers and our appliances all function because we assume that these laws of mathematics are, in fact, universal and consistent. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is the absurdity of claiming that these laws don't exist is pretty obvious, but I'm sure that most atheists recognize that these are absolute laws of math, and I'm curious, how do they try to account for them without presupposing God? Well, like yeah, the first uh, steps of the website that you talk about, I talk about these laws that most most atheists don't object to. I get the odd objection, but most of them agree that these laws are absolute. The the problems run into more when we talk about absolute moral laws, and I think we're going to get into that as yeah. well in a bit. But but when they say that these are um, absolute laws, I say, how do you account for these absolute laws? And and they most often say that they're just characteristics of the universe. Mm. There's a, there's a number of problems with that. First of all, I asked them, how do you know that your senses and reasoning about the universe are valid? Because they have to presuppose that their senses and reasoning is valid. You know, with, without God justifying them, they'll have to say, I reason that my reasoning is valid, and I sense that my senses are valid, which is a viciously circular argument. Sure. But the, prob- the problems go even deeper than that, because, you know, we as humans have a very limited scope of observation. No one has seen the entire universe except God. So to to uh, say that something is universally true without having universal knowledge, I mean, you just simply can't do that. How do you know, you know, what's a universal characteristic? They can't do that. And and another thing, and we were talking about that a little bit earlier, on what basis do they expect these laws not to change? They say they're universal, unchanging laws. Now, even if they could account for their senses to look at the laws in the past, how do they know they're not going to change two seconds from now? And they have no answer for that. And, and finally, how do you account for immaterial laws in a material universe? And, um, you know, these are issues that, that when they say they're character, characteristics of the universe, I mean, you, you could just uh, press them on that and show that um, that, that uh, position just falls apart. Yeah, definitely. And, and you just mentioned, and, and I mentioned when we were talking about math uh, a few moments ago, that um, we expect certain things to remain the same in the, uh, in the future as they've been in the past, which leads into the next tier of this argument, which is science. So... You know, bring this bring this uh, this concept together about how doing science presupposes the existence of God. Okay, now this uh, requires a little bit uh, deeper thought, but uh, when we do science, we also make huge assumptions that cannot be accounted for without God. Now, the basic assumption of science is that tomorrow will be like today, that the future will be like the past, and this is known as the uniformity of nature. And, I, and I'll give you an example. Okay. For instance, w- when we boil water today. You know, at under certain pressures and certain conditions, you know, we find out at what temperature it boils. Let's say, in of course, in America, it's 212, and here we say that's 212 Fahrenheit. In Canada, we say 100 Celsius. <laughs> now, we don't just assume that that amount of water at that day boil. We assume that we know that water is going to boil at that temperature and that pressure every day from now on. Hmm. You would not do a scientific experiment unless you assumed that that same experiment was going to produce the same results tomorrow. Oh, yeah, because the problem if- is... Well, really quick, yes. because if, if the, if the results of the, um, the, uh, experiment the next day, if the results were different, we wouldn't assume that it's because the laws of science have changed or, or that things in the future operate differently than the past. We would assume that we've somehow introduced a new variable. That's right. We don't only assume uniformity, we demand it. Yeah. But the, the problem is that the unbeliever has absolutely no justification for assuming that the future will be like the past. The, the Christian can say, well, we believe in a sovereign God who controls the universe, who allows us to do science. But the unbeliever, you know, they have absolutely no basis for assuming the future will be like the past. And what they always end up saying is the future will be like the past because it's always been like that. See, when they say the future will be like the past because it's always like that, 
what they end up doing is begging the question. They're assuming what is to be proven in the proof. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, the, again, like I mentioned with math, this, this assumption or demand actually that you, as you pointed out, that the future will, uh, behave in the same way that it has in the past is something that we live out every single day. It's, this isn't just something in the laboratory that we're talking about. We're talking about real, everyday, ordinary things. When I try to squeeze toothpaste out of my toothpaste tube, it's because I expect that it's going to happen like it has in the past. Or when I tip my glass of water, it's going to pour out into my mouth just like it has in the past. Now those are actually very good examples that you could bring to children. Yeah. You, know, you talk about getting the getting the apologetic to a level that everybody can understand. You ask the child, "Why do you squeeze the toothpaste tube?" And that's to get the toothpaste to come out. Well, how do you know it's going to come out? Because it's always been like that in the past. But there's one more element: the future has to be like the past in order to make sense of what they're doing. And this is something the unbeliever cannot account for, but the Christian can. Yeah. Well, you know, you're you're. Uh Debate opponent on Unbelievable Paul, he tried to deny that the, the certainty that the future will operate like the past. I believe he said that anything will happen and likely does. And when you tried to press him on it, he affirmed only the probability uh, that it would that the future would behave like the past. Does that work? Does that really address this problem? Well, no, because as I tried to point out to him, that even probability assumes the uniformity of nature. Now, I mean, these concepts are, are getting a little bit deeper. But let me give you an example here. Okay. When, when you let go of a ball and say, it will probably drop when I let it go, what are you really saying? See, what you're saying is that every time in the past when I let go of this ball, it dropped. And since the future is like the past, yeah. this ball will probably drop when I let it go. See, even in probability, they assume the certainty that nature is uniform. But the thing is, you know, they deny that. And there's there's deeper problems with the with the not assuming God in the equation, not starting with God, because if if they say the future will be like the past because it's always been like that, then you know what I tell them? You have just proven that I'm immortal, because I've never died in the past, <laughs> so that means I'm never going to die. That's right. That's I, good. I mean, it, it's amazing how you could just uh, blow apart their arguments with with the things that they claim to be true, you know, just to avoid, you know, telling us that they really know that God exists. Yeah, it really does demonstrate the truth of that passage that they're suppressing the truth that they know. They're not just mm -hmm. awaiting uh, convincing evidence. Okay, so, you know, we've touched on logic, on math, and on science, um, but perhaps the most controversial is uh, morality. So the question I have for you is, how does morality presuppose the existence of God? Well, that's actually the easiest one, and, and the one that uh, unbelievers get mostly hung up on, on my website. See, the first three, they'll try to explain another way, but when they get to morality, um, the existence of absolute moral laws imply that there's an absolute moral lawgiver, and they do not like that. Now, I get so many complaints about this section that I was actually thinking of taking it out of the website because it's not integral to the proof. Any absolutes proves that God exists. So I actually asked some Christian friends, should I take this section out? And they said, no, leave it in, although you get a lot of complaints about it. It actually uh, exposes to the unbeliever what it means to deny absolute moral laws. And, and explain how your website does that, why, why it is that you were considering removing it. I mean, you know, I, I, t tell them exactly the question that, um, that you ask at this point in your website. Well, I, I ask the people, do absolute moral laws exist, you know, yes or no? And they have to click on one of the two options. And before when they click no, I just uh, explained to them, you know, why that was such a, a terrible position to take. But since I got so many complaints, I added an extra page. If you click no, absolute moral laws do not exist, and it takes you to a page, and it says, Seriously, what do you believe? Is molesting children for fun absolutely morally wrong, or is it not absolutely morally wrong? Hmm. So they're here they're confronted with a, a horrible, terrible, wicked thing, and they have to say to stick with their, the consistency of the worldview, say that no, that's not absolutely morally wrong. And just as an aside, I, I get a lot of questions. People say, why do you put down for fun? Isn't molesting children for fun wrong? No, or isn't molesting children wrong no matter what? And indeed it is. But I had people emailing me saying, well, what if I said I was going to kill a billion people if you didn't molest that child? Wouldn't it be right then? And, of course, I believe it's wrong. I just didn't want to have to deal with all of those uh, sure, harebrained sure. scenarios. So. So, so, you know, the one thing, too, that, uh, that, that strikes me is when people try to deny it and they, they go ahead and they click that option that you've given them um, – I really don't think that they believe what it is that they're clicking. You know, it's good for um, illustrating them, illustrating for them, and making them face uh, what it would mean to be really consistent with their worldview. Well, 
Absolutely. I'm, I am thankful that unbelievers are not consistent. Yes, I, there you I'm go. Thankful. I, I praise God that they're not consistent because this world would be hellish yes. if they were consistent with their presuppositions. Yeah, that's true. Okay, well, so some try and dodge this bullet, though, um, as I think that uh, you've probably experienced, by saying that the absolute morality doesn't, in fact, exist, but that moral standards and behavior have developed as a result of evolution. Uh, does that work? Does that uh, sidestep this problem? No, it doesn't. And indeed, that's what they most often say. They bring up evolution because, you know, other than creation, that's the only other game in town. Sure. But um, what they feel to, fail to realize is that even if evolution were true, which it isn't, evolution is a descriptive tool. It tells us what is the case, not what ought to be the case. And morality is prescriptive. It says what ought to be the case. And you can't get an, uh, an ought from an is. That's a, you know, a logical fallacy. Sure. Well, but what do you make of those who try to, in fact, deny that ought actually exist? How do you respond to those who refuse to acknowledge moral absolutes? Uh, I just punch them in the nose. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> hilarious. They, have, they would have no objection because if, if, the, if there's no reason why you ought to do anything, um, then why, why would they have an objection? That's a good point. That, that's right. Of course, I don't do that, but then I give them examples of things that they would absolutely object to. You know, and they would say, you know, I object to this because it's absolutely wrong. But uh, they're very reluctant to say something like that because it exposes what they really do believe. Yeah, that's true. Well, so what we've seen is that on a fundamental level, we all recognize and live by on a day-to-day basis the existence of absolute laws of logic and of math and of science and morality. Um, and that even those who claim to deny their existence of those laws live in a way that proves they are lying to themselves. And because these absolutes cannot be accounted for apart from the existence of God, this shows that these atheists are, as the Bible says, suppressing the truth about God, which they know, and aren't merely awaiting convincing evidence. Is this, is this basically what this uh, approach to apologetics is all about? Yeah, in a, in a nutshell, Chris, that's it. Uh, the presuppositionalist starts and ends with the authority of Jesus Christ. The evidentialist starts and ends with the authority of man. Yes, God can and has used that approach to bring people to him, but there's a danger in creating idolaters rather than being, bringing people to Christ. Well, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm pretty convinced, uh, but I think there are still a couple of gaps left or questions that I've got left to ask. Um, and you've touched on it briefly uh, uh, a couple of times in this interview. Your debate opponent on Unbelievable, I guess I should just keep saying his name, Paul, he said that his mm-hmm. reasoning and the like was the result of his upbringing and a social norms of the culture in which he was raised. I, I think, and I'm not sure that this came out clear to everybody that was listening, but I think what he was trying to do was challenge the claim that we do, in fact, inherently presuppose these things by saying that his presuppositions are not inherent but were developed or produced in childhood. How would you respond to that? Well, I'd, I'd respond to that just as I did in, in the debate. I'd ask him how he knows his reasoning about that is valid. <laughs> right. You see, because we, we all, in fact... Uh, presuppose the laws of logic, but it's only the Christian that can make sense of that presupposition, because Paul will end up saying, I reason that my reasoning is valid, and he'll give reasons for it. That's right. Know, which shows the, the vicious circularity of their position. Well, in fact, you know, he said, if I were raised in a different culture, um, I would reason differently. And, you know, there may be an element of truth in that, and yet he seemed to totally gloss over something that he just said, which is that he would still reason. So just because yeah, he would reason but, differently doesn't change the fact that he would still be presupposing reason. Yeah, but but the thing is that that's a red herring because I asked him how he knows his reasoning is valid. And that he would uh, reason differently says nothing about the validity of his reasoning. I mean, in the show, I pointed out the fact that he was begging the question, that he was you know using circular logic there. But even the reason he gave was a red herring. It wasn't addressing the question. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's just even even that red herring still presumes the validity of logic, both in both in his giving that reason, as well as even if we were to assume that hypothetical scenario that he would reason differently, he would still reason. And so it would still beg the question, is reasoning valid? So, but no, you I, notice all. Yeah, you notice also that uh, he said that the laws of logic would be the same. You know, that's something he can't account for. If if you know, he made he took the point uh, the position that uh, logic was subject to man, and on the forums I, I just uh, demolished that view for him. I said, you know, if logic was subject to man, could the universe have both existed and not existed at the same time and in the same way before man existed? And he just ran from that cre- question like like you you wouldn't believe because if logic was created by man or is subject to man. 
then things could have been illogical before man was around, and that's just a ridiculous position to take. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Well, here, here's another question that I think came up on Unbelievable, and, and I'll be honest, I didn't quite follow your response. Uh, I would agree with you that a god is a necessary precondition, uh, presupposition for the reality of logic and so forth. But why is it that, that the Christian God, as revealed in the Bible, is the only presupposition that really accounts for these things? Why not, uh, you know, the God of Islam or, or paganism or a whole host of other theistic religions? Well, first of all, when you say that you would agree with me that a God is a necessary precondition, you're not agreeing with me. My position is that the God of Christianity is a necessary precondition. And that's something that, you know, we really have to keep Fair in enough. mind. And, and why are the other gods or the other alleged idols, you know, the ale- yes. alleged gods, why aren't they the necessary precondition? Well, the simple answer is because they don't exist. Sure. Well, what about the complex answer? A uh, more complex answer is because none of them provide the preconditions of intelligibility and they're inherently con- contradictory. Now, we know that none of them are true or none of them exist because God has revealed it certainly in his word that he is the only God. So we don't know it by disproving the others. We know it by God's word. And then we go out and disprove the ones that are, are brought to us. But uh, we know that the other gods are false because this is what God has revealed to us such that we can be certain in his word. And if anybody wants to bring another uh, standard of, of uh, these laws or, you know, preconditions for intelligibility, I say, bring it on, you bring it to me, and I'll, I'll be glad to show you where you're wrong. So let me make sure I understand something. It sounds to me, and correct, correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds to me like what you're saying is you're making a distinction between knowing that the triune God of Scripture is the only valid presupposition. I mean, that's that's the presupposition we operate from, and there, and that's why, ultimately, we know that the God, the so-called gods of Islam and so forth are, are false. Whereas when, we, when it comes to... Um, disproving, I guess, or, or illustrating the uh, falsehood of these other religions, that's where maybe um, we would begin to get into evidence. Is that kind of what you're saying? Well, you do an internal critique of their worldview. You ask them, like the same with, with unbelievers or with people of other faiths, you ask, you ask them the same thing. How do you know what you know? And the example that I brought up on the radio show was the example of Islam. You ask a Muslim, how do you know what you know? And they'll end up saying, well, because it says it in the Quran. And then I say to them, well, what does the Quran say about the Bible? And they say, well, the Quran, uh, the, the Quran says that the Bible, or in the Quran they call it the book, is true. It's the word of God. Mm. And you say, well, why don't you believe the word of God now? And they end up saying, well, because the Bible has been corrupted over the years. And then you point them to another voice verse in the Quran that says the word of God cannot be corrupted. Mm. So their own worldview refutes their position. You do an internal critique, and you, and, you, know, you need a little more knowledge of the of the worldview at that point, but uh, you do the same thing. You ask the same type of questions, and you show that without assuming the truth of Scripture, that they can't know anything at all. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So if we're still not even really getting into evidence. We're just still attacking the foundation, the presuppositions. That's right. Right. Well, so that brings us to the last question I have for you, which is, if and I would agree that presuppositional apologetics is the biblical and practical approach for all the reasons we've talked about. What do you see as the role of evidential apologetics? Because, um, you know, as you yourself have said, you enjoy at least, or at least in the past have enjoyed talking about evidence, and I certainly have relied upon that in the past. Does this, does this approach go away altogether? Do we just ignore it? Well, I think that we have to be careful to distinguish evidential apologetics with evidences. Mm. Because the presuppositionalist is more of an evidentialist than the evidentialist, because we say that everything is evidence for the existence of God. The very concept of evidence is evidence for the existence of God, but we don't allow the unbeliever to be the authority over God when we present evidences. Fair enough. There is a role for evidences in apologetics, but evidential apologetics, which assumes that man is the authority, is an unbiblical and, and dare I say, a sinful way to uh, proceed. No, I would agree. Well, so, but you said that there is a time and a place for evidences beyond just the presuppositions that we've talked about. What, you know, what is that time and place? Well, um, the teleological, the, the per- teleological argument and the cosmology, these kinds of things. Well, the, the person that I, that I study under uh, mostly, um, I've downloaded his lectures and uh, come to understand this apologetic is a fellow by the name of Dr. Greg Bonson. He's been uh, dead for about uh, 15 years now. Sadly, he died at uh, 47. But in one of the lectures, he actually talked about the role of evidences in apologetic. And if you don't mind, I'll just uh, list three of the points that uh, he gives for um, 
us when we use evidence is in apologetics. Yeah, please do. Evidence is, the first point, evidences are valuable in strengthening the confidence of believers, and I think we alluded to that earlier. Yeah. The second point is evidences can be used to embarrass unbelievers in their sarcasm and criticism against the Bible's scientific and historic claims. They can be used to silence the futile empirical objections of unbelievers to the claims of Christianity. So when, when they bring up something which is obviously scientifically false, you know, rather than accepting that and then going into a presuppositional method, we could say, you know, wait a minute. This is the facts. This is the scientific facts about what you're bringing up, like carbon-14 or whatever. But now let's get into your fundamental assumptions about science. Mm. You know, and the thing is, if, if you don't know about carbon-14 dating, then you don't have to get into that. You can just get right to the, uh, right to the basis and attack their assumptions when they do science. But, you know, if you happen to know, if you happen to be an expert in the field and they say something that's totally ridiculous, you know, I say blow it out of the water. You know, just to show that their claim is false and then deal with the presuppositions. I see. And, and the, okay, the third point is evidences can be helpful in clearing away the mental debris of intellectual prejudice that is held by so many unbelievers. So if they have a scientific objection to Christianity and you happen to know the scientific resolution for that, then, you know, by all means, give it to them. But don't allow them to be the authority over this. Like when you clear it away, say, OK, now, wait a minute. How do you even understand or how can you do the science? by which you make this objection? How do you account for the logic by which you make this objection? And and you could show them, you could take their mask off that way and uh, show them that without God, they have no justification for even asking the question. Yeah, so if I'm understanding you, what you're saying is that, uh, well, not necessarily first and foremost, but, um, you know, one way in which evidence of evidences play a role is in bolstering the faith of the believer. But when it comes to the unbeliever, uh, the unbeliever, um, Serve, it really should only be used in tandem with or, or, or to, uh, you know, in, in conjunction with a presuppositional apologetic. Because on one hand, we can um, demonstrate the absurdity of a, of a false evidential claim, um, or we can, as you said, clear mental debris away. Um, we can do that, but then we return to the presuppositions um, and, and highlight how their objection can't even be accounted for without presupposing the existence of God. Does that sound about right? That's right. Don't get into the atheist airplane if you're going to use evidences. Use them, but make sure that you don't give up God as the authority when you use these evidences. Good, good. Okay, well, do you want to um, tell us a, just a little bit about your website, what it is that you do there, uh, and why you do it before we let you go? Well, um, I started off um, making this website a number of years ago when I was still an evidentialist. And um, it was extremely frustrating because I looked into these arguments, and all I would get is uh, counter-arguments to every single point. And they went back and forth. It wasn't until later that I realized that the reason I was getting these counter-arguments is because they were actually bad arguments. Mm. Now, Christians still hang on to these arguments because the conclusions are true. And we love these arguments because we're Christians. But when you take them out into a, a, a world of logic, you can see that, that they do really poorly. But um, so I abandoned uh, that. I actually shelved the whole idea of the website for for quite a while, for a number of years. And then, uh, by the grace of God, I was shown the presuppositional method and, and shown that there, there is no argument against this, that, you know, as soon as they make a knowledge claim, they're actually um, presupposing that God exists. So what I want to do uh, in the website is take this apologetic from the PhD realm and uh, try and bring it down to a level of people like me. And I have to read these books over and over again in order to understand them and to glean the little nuggets, you know, down at my level, and, and that's what I did in the website. I, I present questions so that people can realize what they believe and what they must assume in order to believe those things. Right. Yeah, I really like the way that you do it, this uh, you know, step-by-step, point-and-click approach. I really recommend to you, my listeners uh, that, they, that they take a look. Um, I, think it's, I think it does a good job of exactly what you're saying, which is it, bring it brings it out of the Ph.D. realm to a level that um, the rest of us can understand. And uh, the other thing is, if I recall correctly, you're in the process of writing a book. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, quite a slow process because in writing this book, I uh, discovered that I'm not a writer. <laughs> I could, I can make blog posts and I can answer people on uh, different websites, you know, till the cows come home. But the problem is that uh, I was writing this book and thinking that I had a really good paragraph and looking at it the next day and seeing that it was garbage. Mm. But uh, thankfully, in preparing for this radio debate, I had a chance to listen to a lot of Christians and I would say alleged Christians debating unbelievers and just seeing what a woeful job they did, and actually focused um, my approach that I can I can bring this argument to Christians, and um, you know maybe introduce to them for the first time the God that they really believe in, or to show how the God that they believe in in church, you know, can be taken into the world. 
True. rather than the uncertainty that they have in the world being brought into the church. And, and sadly, that seems to be the case you know, all too often. Yeah, I can concur. And, and uh, you know, when you get that book published, I know, like you said, it's going to be a slow process, but please do let me know because I'm going to be one of the first to buy it, I tell you. Yeah, one thing that uh, I, I'd like to close with, be, you know, before we end the conversation is that in your opening, you were talking about uh, laughing at uh, Paul's plight um, in oh, this yeah. debate. And um, now, what I want to say is that this apologetic, it's a relief. When people see for the first time that God has equipped us to defend the faith, I mean, it's joyful, it's exhilarating, and we want to laugh. We want to laugh at the plight of these people. And like I said, I was listening to this debate with a friend of mine, and he wanted to high-five me you know, uh, during all, all these really good moments. And of course, you know, I, I wanted to share the joy with him. But what we have to keep in mind is that this man, aside from repentance, is going to hell. Yeah. And, and that's a very tragic thing. And what we have to realize is it's not because of anything we've done, but because of God's grace alone that we're not in their shoes. So I understand the initial exhilaration of, of, you know, of finding out about this powerful apologetic, but it says in 1 Peter 3.15 to do it with gentleness and respect. And, you know, of course, we get this admonition because we're dealing with something that's a very sharp sword. And, you know, we don't want to, as Paul said in the interview, bludgeon people with it. And I tried not to do that. But even in that interview, I've been getting a lot of grief from evidentialists who are saying that I was unkind. And, um, of course, you know, I try not to be. I try to deliver the gospel in this apologetic. But um, when you when you have a sharp sword like that, I mean, uh, you can certainly nick people, if not uh, damage them. No, that's definitely true, and, and you know, of course, there's already an offense to the gospel. We don't need to be adding uh, still greater offense. And you know, you, you're absolutely right in what you said. When when I laugh, I, obviously, I'm not. I don't intend any way to laugh at them. It, it's stemming from that relief. But um, you know, uh, well, the thing is, just so you know, you're not alone in that. And like I say, when I first found this apologetic, you know, that's the reaction that I had. But then the the more you get into it, you you the, it shows you how gracious God is towards us that. You know, we, we have, you know, this wonderful apologetic. We have the love of our Savior, and we know it. Yeah. You know, and these people don't have that, and it, it's just something that, you know, it's not funny. And and I'm not saying, like I say, I understand the reaction, and there are times, too. Like, when I was doing that interview, and, and Paul said these, uh, these ridiculous, I actually prayed that Paul would say things that would end up glorifying God. Mm. And when he did, it was joyous. It was joyous. I mean, it inspires you to want to laugh and stuff like that, but we have to just... Keep the big picture in mind that aside from repentance, this person is going to hell, and we would be just like him if it wasn't for the grace of God. You're right. I, you know, and I want to leave my listeners with a, a picture to, I think, illustrate what you're saying. Uh, Focus on the Family did a um, series uh, project called The Truth Project, and, um, you know, I highly recommend that. But when, when I uh, attended the kickoff for that, the host was a guy named Del Tackett, and he, you know, the the... the context of the discussion was a little bit differently, but he made the point that we need to view unbelievers as prisoners. You know, they're, they're in chains, they're in bondage to disbelief, and as you said, and if not for the grace of God, they're going to remain in that state until they die and then spend eternity apart from God. So, um, you're right, no, no one can really the, imagine... The sad thing is, yeah, and the sad thing about that is, is at the end of the interview, Paul said that he was looking forward to hell. He was actually yeah. being consistent there, but what a horribly sad thing to hear, to hear someone say. It is sad. It is sad. So we definitely need to be praying for these people and not laughing at them. So I, I appreciate that exhortation. And, um, you know, I, I hope that uh, if you're up for it, maybe you can join me sometime in the future for another topic. We'd love to have you back on. Sure. Yeah, I'm uh, doing a debate uh, shortly in North Carolina, my first actually live moderated debate. So I'll be quite Ooh. busy in preparation for that. But uh Hopefully sometime after that we can get together and uh, discuss some other topics that are dear to our hearts. That'd be great. i got a lot of them to talk about. So, Well, thanks for joining Wonderful. me. I, I appreciate it, and I'll talk to you again in the future. Have, have a good time up there in Canada. Get some rest. It's my, my pleasure, Chris. Uh, thanks very much for this. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I hope you've enjoyed this interview as much as I enjoyed giving it, and I do recommend that you visit Sai's site at proofthatgodexists.org. And I hope that you'll come and join me for the next episode of this podcast. I have a bunch of exciting topics lined up. So until then...